You're listening to a Monday Breakfast podcast on 3CR 855 AM. Thanks for tuning in. 3CR is broadcasting from the lands of the Kulin Nations, true owners, custodians, and caretakers of the land from which we broadcast. We pay our respects to elders, past, present, and emerging, and recognize that sovereignty has not been ceded and a treaty never signed. CCR Breakfast. Oh, yeah. Alternative news, analysis, and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7 a.m. to 8 30 a.m. Good morning. Good morning. And it's uh, the 12th of August. Yes. And welcome to 3CR. Monday breakfast, everyone who's listening out there. It's great to have you with us this morning. Okay. I'm, Judith, I'm Judith. I should introduce myself. <laughs> and Dean. And, and just quickly, the weather for Melbourne today. High chance of showers, mainly in the morning, a top of 13, with winds uh, increasing late in the afternoon. And uh, tomorrow will be the same, a low of 9 and a top of 13. And you know what? I remember last week, Dean, I spoke far too soon, saying what a mild winter it had been. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and you said, you wait next and week. And then it came. It, it came. came. It sure um, did. A yeah. fair few friends of mine sent videos. They live up in Woodend. Oh, okay. And they had probably around 30 centimetres of snow, which stayed on the ground. Normally, it just sort of goes. But, yeah, right. so a lot of people have... Would have had fun in the snow. Yeah, I hope. yeah. I well, I mean, they've got young kids, so it would have oh, been great yeah. to be able to, you know, make uh, snow people. Yeah, for sure. And we used to make angels, I think. Yeah, yeah. Oh, no, never. Never. never? I just, even you when weren't I, an angel. No, <laughs> no. Even when I do fall in the snow, I hate that feeling, you know. It's oh, like, do oh, you? just oh, getting wet. Because okay. we don't have the proper attire. No, that's you true. Know? I guess that's true. Whereas, in, yeah, yeah if, if you sort of got the right gear, you're never going to get wet. Yeah. You can do whatever you want. But um, most of the time, snow would always get in somewhere yeah, and it would always yeah, be wet. No, it's cold. <laughs> yeah. um, we've got a pretty jam-packed show today. We do. We sure do. Yeah. So um, after eight, we're going to be speaking with Vince uh, Capitura from IPAN, the international, or oh, sorry, the independent um, Australia Network Peace and Peaceful Australia Network. And uh, he's going to be talking about their conference, which was not this past weekend, the weekend before, but also the call, the U.S. call to Australia to place missiles in Darwin. Mm. So we're going to hear a bit more about yeah, what's happening there and, and also to, you know, opposition to China as well. So there's a whole lot going on in that area. And um, before that, we'll be speaking, we'll be going to follow up on our story from last week on the rise of silicosis among workers, and we'll be speaking with Professor Tim Driscoll, and he's from the the Cancer Council, and uh, he's an occupational health, um, both a physician but also a researcher, epidemiologist, so he's going to look at it from from that perspective. And, um, yeah, I think we've got uh, Desiree, is that right? Yes, Desiree. Kaya, the national president of the National Union of Students, talking about a uh, performance-based funding scheme, which was announced by um, Dan Tien last week. I heard that. Mm. I thought this is a huge worry. It's really... And, and only two years since, I think, the previous one was... Um, in 2017, where the government ended the policy of demanding um, funding 
which is driven by universities. So hopefully uh, we'll find out how this new scheme will work and what the plans are for it. Yes, that'll be interesting. And um, also we're going to be speaking with Senator Rex Patrick, who's um, been asking more questions about the raids on the ABC and News Corp journalist. And, it's good uh, to see somebody keeps taking it seriously. Not only does he take it seriously, but he's uh, put in a freedom of information request and mm. got quite a number of documents, but there were some he did not get. So we're going to hear from him shortly. That doesn't surprise me. We'll give you some, but not all of it. It's a bit like the conversation we were having last week. Um, oh, I forgot the lady's name, but they had from Friends of the Earth. Oh, they, yes, yeah, yes, indeed. Yes. And, um, one person wrote back and said, well, you can't have that at the moment. You know, yes. We've got a panel who's making a decision, and the yeah. decision's pending. Um, yeah. But the freedom of information request is always an interesting one. I don't think many people know that. You can just ask for information. Yes, and, and they things. also may not know that there are certain organisations that are exempt. Yes, yeah. Oh, <laughs> oh, <laughs> oh, no, I didn't know that. Yeah, that's one of the things we're going to hear about too. Um, and then, um, it was very exciting, on the weekend there was an announcement of awards for Indigenous artists. Mm, mm. Uh, and and, that, and uh, we've, um, you know, top of that list was Mojo Juju, with Native Tongue, both for the album, I think she won an award for Best Album and Best Song. Did you did you uh, hear no, about that? No, I, I didn't even know they were on. You know, there's um, the National Indigenous Music Awards. I had a quick look about, it brings together acts who are yet to make their mark on the world, alongside those who have achieved international acclaim, such as people like Gurumul. So they're a special celebration of Indigenous music. Um, Baker Boy was awarded Artist of the Year and took to the stage for a surprise performance for his single Black Magic during uh, Triple J Unearthed winner Dallas Wood set. So everybody's, um, you know, doing their bit for Indigenous music, but also making sure that we get to hear it and enjoy it as well. Yeah, well, we're going to get to hear quite a bit of it today, this morning, because <laughs> I think most, all but one of our, our um, music selections are... Dedicated to Indigenous music today. And in fact, we do play quite a lot here, uh, both here on Monday Breakfast, but also 3CR generally. And I think Mojo Juju said that Indigenous music is the most exciting music that's coming through in Australia. And I, I tend to agree with that, actually. There's some, every time I turn around, there's a new performer I haven't mm. heard about. Mm. And uh, just lots just to, to keep on top of and keep track of. There's a lot of variety too with Indigenous yes. artists. They're not just yeah. sort of, you know, going down the mainstream track. They do a lot of different things in terms of what they produce and how then they use their status to move into other fields, whether it's acting or whether yeah. it's drama, whether it's writing. Yeah, you know, it's quite great talent, yeah. amazing talent. I think I think of Lady Lash, for example, who kind of combines hip hop and jazz in some of her. Songs, so that's yes, I've heard some of that. You've yeah, that we have before. played. Yeah. We have played some of it. And she's quite great, and I think she's maybe getting close to completing a documentary uh, about her work, her life from Seduna. Yeah, yeah. Go um, a Greek woman from Seduna, and uh, yeah. So looking forward to that coming out too. I haven't thought to have a check and see when that's coming. And we might go to a quick track now before we listen to um, our next guest. We are going to listen to Native Tongue, the beautiful song by Mojo Juju. Here it is. Yeah. I don't speak my father's native tongue. 
Mojo Juju with Native Tongue that won Song of the Year and Album of the Year with them. Yeah. So that's that's been fabulous, really. Yeah, much deserved. Yeah, it's, uh, it always strikes me as odd sometimes when um, a, an artist doesn't win both of those. You know, if you've got Song of the Year, you'd hopefully think that the yeah, rest of the Yeah, but it does sort of go together, yeah, doesn't it? You'd, yes. you'd hope so. Yeah. Um, and New Talent of the Year is Kite, Kate. Uh, mm-hmm. K-A-I-I-T and the film clip of the year was Life is Incredible by uh, Briggs yeah, that's, an, that's amazing Miller. such a satire yeah, yeah it's great and Kate's song I looked it up on the weekend just stunning Natu- oh, well sorry I looked up Natural Woman which yeah. is one of the songs and it's just beautiful really fabulous and, yeah. and it's amazing it sets your your, your music career on, on, a, on a path, doesn't it, when people recognise your talent yeah. and y- your song resonates with a lot of people as well. Sure, it does, yeah. So I think coming up next, I don't know if you were watching, checking out the news last week, but I think Thursday or Friday we saw the story and, and Senator Rex Patrick, he's a senator for South Australia with Central, the Centre Alliance Party. Uh, he has a particular interest in defence and yeah. intelligence, so he's got some background there. He's also concerned about press freedom and the Australian federal police raids on the offices of the ABC in the home of News Corp journalist Annika Smethurst. So he filed a freedom of information request to find out more. Now, just to, uh, to explain, when I spoke to Senator Patrick last Thursday, he was in Cooper Pedy. And he was, uh, it was early in the morning and he was in one of those underground hotels. <laughs> have you ever been to Cooper Pedy? No, no. No, I haven't, but you yeah. have heard about these. I have, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So the sound is not as strong as I would like, but, uh, but the message, the sound, while well, the sound might be strong, the message is strong and it's also very clear. Uh, and the reception did go back and forth a little bit, but, um, I began to, uh, by asking him, you know, why he'd gone looking for more information. This is such an important issue. The media allows citizens to participate in democracy and you cannot have a situation where the media are constrained in what they do. If you let constraints and the raids go unchecked, you end up with a situation where the only thing that people get to hear about is what the government wants you to hear about and that is not how a democracy works. I'm curious about what made you think there was more to this that you needed to go looking for more documents? Well, in all circumstances where the government are acting on something, there's always information behind the scenes that help to uncover what the thinking was. And in this instance where you've got a police raids, very serious matters. And I wanted to find out things like, did they seek legal advice before they commenced the raid? What did they present to the registrar at the Queanbeyan Court before asking him to sign a warrant. Did they use other techniques like journalist information warrants to look at metadata before going through a very public and very overt raid on a media office? They're all very relevant questions and I sought to find the answers to some of those. And you didn't get all the information you requested, I understand. Why was that? It's always the case with FOI the government will uh, redact or refuse to release uh, certain information. 
That can be challenged, and I am in the process of considering uh, challenging the redactions that have been applied uh, later in September and October when we've got a set of estimates. A lot of the information that I do have will allow me to directly ask questions of the police commissioner. The burden for not answering a question from a senator is much, much higher than it is for FOI. What organisations or agencies don't have to comply with freedom of information requests? So one of the interesting things that flowed from this particular request was they refused to provide me with information under one of the sections of the FOI Act that prevents you getting access to information from certain agencies. And those agencies include ASIO, it includes the Australian Signals Directorate, it includes the Australian Secret Intelligence Service, uh, it includes the Inspector General of Intelligence and Security, and there are a couple of other agencies that can't be uh, FOI'd. The fact that you didn't get a response to some of those requests pointed to the fact that this was a broader issue than just the Australian Federal Police. Yeah, what it tells me is that there are agencies involved other than the Federal Police, and some of those almost certainly are security agencies and intelligence agencies. So what are the implications of the involvement of these these intelligence organisations in the raids on the ABC and News Corps journalist Annika Smethurst? Each of them have particular functions, and they also have particular restrictions. And I'll preface what I'm about to say by saying I don't know the facts, but I'm just making an example. ASIS, for example has extensive powers, but they're powers that can only be exercised outside of uh, Australia's borders. The Australian Signals Directorate, who monitor communications and can eavesdrop, are also an agency that cannot operate inside of Australian borders. So if, indeed, they were the agencies involved, that would invoke further questions to find out why and on what basis what power was being exercised if they were involved. Now, did you just say that the Australian Signals Directorate is not allowed to spy on Australian citizens? Yes, the Australian Signals Directorate used to be what was called the Defence Signals Directorate, had a very hardcore defence function, and that was outward-looking. The name was changed to the Australian Signals Directorate to recognise that it's actually quite useful to monitor what is going on in the world, not just in respect of defence, but in respect of things like terrorism and other national security issues. Uh, I support ASD, I think it's a great agency, but if, for example, they were to be turning uh, some of their tools inward and looking at Australia, that would be of a great concern. And ironically, that is the very fact that Annika Smethurst revealed in her expose showing that, in fact, the Department of Defence had been talking to the Department of Home Affairs about the use of ASD internally within Australia. So in my view, what Annika reported on is absolutely what should have been in the public domain. I get that security agencies have to work secret in many instances, but Australians have a right to know if indeed uh, a particular agency is empowered to operate within Australia because what that does is allow for debate and it also allows for people uh, like me in the Senate to propose and encourage laws in respect of oversight of those sorts of activities. Whenever you have an agency operating in secret, you want to have an appropriate oversight mechanism to make sure that there is no abuse of that power. 
And it's so important. And if you've just tuned in, I'm speaking with Senator Rex Patrick, a senator for South Australia with the Centre Alliance Party. And uh, just to, to explain with the, the sound quality, I spoke to the senator when he was in Cooper PD and he was in the underground motel. So it <laughs> got, you kind of get a bit of that feeling. So apologize for that. But I felt it was such a, an important issue. And, um, and um, Senator Patrick's very clear about why it's a problem. But I did ask him why the police didn't just access the journalists' metadata instead of doing these raids. When the laws passed in 2015 to give the police the power to access metadata, the Parliament made it very clear that you can't simply have a senior officer sign off on a metadata warrant for a journalist. The process involves getting a public interest advocate to actually argue against the warrant. And the public interest advocate, the documents that I have revealed, will either be a senior counsel, a Queen's counsel, or a former judge. Now, you can imagine the police, in trying to get access to uh, anarchist methods metadata or the ABC's metadata, would have had to have paid for a very significant legal mind to argue against them. In my view, it's highly likely they just did not want to go down that path. They had a much easier pathway, which was simply to go down to the court and get a registrar to sign a warrant that allowed them to walk into the offices of the ABC and the home of Anarchist Methurst. And you have said publicly that journalists were definitely targeted in this raid. Uh, there is no question, and we just go through the history of this. When the raids were occurring, there were questions raised about that. In the media brief, the police commander was instructed not to go to the details of that. You might recall at the time the Attorney General came out and said it won't be the journalists that are targeted, but has since backed off from that and indicated that he's not inclined to prosecute a journalist. But if you look at the data that I've received under FOI, it makes it very clear that one of the charges in the warrant is receiving stolen property, and that is directed at the journalist. There's no question that the journalists are being targeted, and what concerns me is even though the attorney has suggested that he would not be inclined to prosecute a journalist, actually, he has no say in this. Oh, really? So who does have a say? This is a matter where the police will prepare a brief of evidence and they will pass it across to the Commonwealth Director of Public Prosecutions. The Commonwealth Director of Public Prosecutions will be the body that decides whether or not to proceed with the prosecution. There are some prosecutions in Australia where the attorney's uh, permission is required. Receiving stolen property is not one of those offences that requires uh, his approval. There is, just to be very clear, a power under the Judiciary Act, the Attorney-General, to stop a prosecution on the basis of public interest. I have written to the Attorney-General in relation to an ATO whistleblower, uh, Richard Boyle, and he adamantly stated it's a power that he would use only in the rarest of circumstances. So this is still hanging over the ABC journalists and the News Corp. It must be, yeah. And, And I'm sure... They will be worried about it, and anyone around them in a media office would be concerned about that. And that's the problem here. We've got this huge chilling effect on journalists who are there to expose government's wrongdoings, politicians' wrongdoings, judges' wrongdoings, and indeed wrongdoing of corporate entities as well. 
that's the important part these journalists play. And these raids and these particular charges had an extremely chilling effect on uh, the journalists involved, but any other journalist that was watching. Well, Senator Patrick, thank you so much for your time this morning. It's a really important issue, and you're most welcome. And that was Senator Rex Patrick, Centre Alliance Party. And uh, it's great that he's followed this up and gotten that information. And interestingly, he mentioned at the end of that um, conversation the uh, ATO whistleblower, Richard Boyle, and it, this morning in the news, apparently Richard Boyle is launching a crowdfunding campaign to defend his legal case. Mm. So, mm. Um, it, you know, whistleblowers are still in a very difficult situation, and um, that's obviously another case to watch carefully. And the ABC reported a few days ago that um, the Home Affairs Minister, Peter Dutton, has ordered the Australian Federal Police to consider the importance of press freedom before investigating journalists who publish classify material. Isn't that interesting? And this mm. is coming right after these questions were raised by Senator Patrick. So I don't know if there's a connection, but it's certainly there's certainly value in going deeper into these issues and getting more in-depth uh, information. And, and for someone like Peter Dutton to come out and say, you know, uh, we want you to take into account the importance of a free and open press in Australia's democratic society. Yeah, now. A month ago you weren't talking like that. So, yes, I mean, for people like Senator Rex, um, it's important for him to just keep keep the guys yeah. honest. You and know? he's he's known and he's known actually for going into detail. And I don't know if you remember um, early on in in these um, raids, and he uh, had a call from the head of the Home Affairs Office, uh, who said, uh, you know, he didn't like being he didn't like Rex, <laughs> Senator Patrick saying in public that um, that he uh, didn't like scrutiny, media yeah. scrutiny, yeah. and. Uh, and uh, Senator Patrick made that public that he'd had that phone call, yeah. and he yeah. said it was most unusual. He said he was very polite, yeah. but yeah. most unusual for a, a public servant to to actually, you know, take on a senator. <laughs> so anyway, there's lots more on that story. And also this morning in the conversation, uh, our, our friend Dennis Muller, who's been on our show many times yeah. talking about press freedom, freedom has commented uh, saying that Dutton's directive gives journalists a bit more breathing space, but not whistleblowers. So that, that will be an interesting article to read as well. Just a little bit of breathing space. Not yeah. a lot, but yeah. you know. We have experienced and we are experiencing an erosion of freedoms in yeah. Australia. There's no question about it. Mm. It's been documented in so many different ways. So it's very interesting that uh, Peter, Peter Dutton, Dutton yeah, yeah. has uh, kind of pulled back on the journalist. But, you know, this question is still to be played out. And I'll be interested to see the kinds of questions that Senator Patrick asks uh, during Senate estimates. Going to have a, a little more music now. Yes, before we get to our next guest. Yeah, and it's uh, Christine Anu with Kulbayade. 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 And that was Christine Anu with Kuviade. And the, that's the first song she wrote in language, which I thought was wonderful. And it's her mother's language, the Kulagawaya language from Western Torres, Torres Strait. And that song came out in 1995. And uh, I'm sure you're aware, Dean, that it's the International Year of Indigenous Languages. And the UN yes. has yeah, identified yeah. that. And, uh, you know, it aims to raise awareness of the... Um, 
particularly the endangerment of indigenous language across the world. So it's really great. And we're hearing more and more language uh, from indigenous, indigenous artists, artists in yeah. the music. And it's just fabulous. Um, it's so exciting. Yeah. It's time now to move to our next guest. Um, we're going to university, I think. Yes, yeah. we are. We are. Yeah. Um, in, in 2012, the Labor government introduced a policy of demand-driven funding to universities and then um, in 2017 the government ended that policy that had been introduced by the previous Labor government and I guess under the policy the number of government funded Commonwealth supported places for Australian graduates was based on the number of undergraduates enrolling in courses so roughly speaking every student um, who enrolled could get a funded place and there was no limit or cap which is why the policy was also known as uncapped funding but more recently um, Dan Tian, the Education Minister, was in Wollongong last week to discuss a new report on an upcoming funding formula for universities, performance-based funding. Uh, To find out a little bit more about why universities should be weary about this performance-based funding, we are joined by the National Union of Students National President, Desiree Kai, to tell us a little bit more. Good morning, Desiree. Hey, good morning. Thanks for joining us on 3CR. Now, um, Dan Tian obviously was in Wollongong and um, he talked a little bit about the report and what he thinks might uh, you know, be a better way to go for universities in terms of giving them funding based on performance. Can you give me, first of all, start by giving me a bit of, a, a, I guess, an insight into what that might look like and what is being proposed for universities? Yeah, so as far as we know, um, currently the measures, they, they're looking to, you know, there's a pool of like $80 million per year and then they'll increase according to, um, you know, the population growth and, uh, extra funding for universities will be given to universities based on, um, like a lot of measures that are based around student success. So first year attrition rates, uh, participation rates in university from students from like equity groups like Indigenous students, lower socioeconomic status and rural and regional students, um, graduate employment rates and then student satisfaction with teaching quality. So they're the four sort of measures that um, he's been talking about. Um, and yeah, so it's up to 80 million per year for the entire sector um, and you know, the idea is that it would be an end to the funding freeze that was introduced in 2017. Mm. And, and uh, there is, of course, obviously scope for this um, proportion to be adjusted in the future. You talk about, you know, some of the measures being things like um, uh, retention rates, graduate outcomes and equity groups and, and things like that. Well, do you think that there might be some scope for this proportion to be adjusted in the future depending on how the university performance Sorry, how the universities perform, or more so on the students? Um, like, I guess universities are hopeful that, you know, the amount of funding will increase um, with, like, a performance increase, but currently that's not really been, like, discussed. Um, I guess something that we're really wary of is the fact that, you know, this has been hailed as, like, the end of the funding freeze, you know, $80 million a year, 
universities will, you know, be back up and running. But the reality is that the um, funding cut that w- that happened, or the funding freeze that happened in 2017, that was $2.2 billion, and now this is, you know... <laughs> yeah, I mean, it doesn't, doesn't even... I'm sorry to interrupt, Nazari, but it doesn't even compare, mm. does it? It's a, a drop in the ocean. No, it is. It's completely, like, irrelevant, <laughs> you know? Yeah. yeah. Especially when there's vital services on campus for students, things like counselling, academic support and career services, which aren't going to have any sort of funding allocated to them. Yeah, definitely. I mean, like, that amount of funding is not really going to revitalise the services that are essential for, you know, students to be supported better at universities because currently students are struggling and that's not only because university services are not funded but also things that the government are providing for students are not funded. Like youth allowance, which is a student income support payment, um, students on that allowance are living in poverty because of the cost of rent um, in major cities where universities are and, you know, just the general cost of living has gone up and the um, support from that, you know, income support hasn't risen in like 20 years. Yes, I mean, these things are all linked, aren't they? And that's, mm. that's what you're pointing out there. You, you need yeah, to take a, a broader approach than, yeah. Completely. And so, has, has it been tried elsewhere, this type of funding model? Um, so as far as I know, not really. We haven't really looked, um, you know, if, if it has been tried elsewhere. But, uh, I guess some other concern about the, um, I guess the broad sort of model of this, you know, it can, it's being applied everywhere, you know, at very different universities from like GO8, you know, your Melbourne universities to like your regional universities, like your Charles Darwin, you know. Um, so I think there might be some concern to see how it is applied, you know, in different areas and with very different situations. Um, but. And I guess, yeah, there's some concerns in the way that the performance would be measured. You know, in terms of would they be just a blunt, you know, um, way mm. and, 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 and I guess make some, uh, universities become unstable? Cause I think it talks about growing year on year above 2017 levels until a maximum of 7.5% of a university's yeah. funding is allocated. Mm. Yeah, definitely. There's some concern. Of course, of course it uh, hasn't been implemented yet. So we're still sort of waiting to see how that plays out, but mm. there is concern. And, and, you know, the scheme itself, with the total amount of funding available to the sector, it will need to include the, the maybe a growth funding scheme that will allocate those funds or can allocate those funds? Because I know I was reading that there was a number of countries who use similar performance models for undergraduate education, mainly the United Kingdom and New Zealand, but they do mm-hmm. not attach funding to performance at all. Yeah. You know? Well, that's, you know, it's a very, like, carrot and stick so like (laughs) (laughs) so what are the challenges then what would be the challenges I guess for you know you talked about Melbourne University and then other types of universities I just think that uh, you know when you look at students and what they need and I guess um, I don't know the the measures they'll be applied I just think when you look at universities their situations are so different Mm. Um, you know certain universities like big ones they can rely heaps on international education to boost up their funding while others might not be able to do so. Um, when you talk about graduate employment rates, like you're looking at entirely different cohorts of students um, and like, you know, 
even questions about how that's measured is going to be interesting. Like, are you going to measure it based on just if they're employed or not, or yeah. if they're employed within yeah. their sector, you know? It seems like trying to put the cup before the horse. Because, you, you yeah. know, universities can do little to influence the wider employment market, essentially. Yeah, definitely. And again, it comes back to the thing where it's a broader range of things that influence these factors than just universities themselves. And, and then, you know, what you're trying to ensure is making sure that some universities are not incentivised to decrease places available in some areas. And then, you know, yeah. which especially because they might have below average employment outcomes. Definitely. Yeah. And so in terms... Yeah, so, I mean, the thing that is obviously absent, <laughs> glaringly absent from these performance indicators is research, you know, ideas. Yeah. Um, the influence of ideas around, uh, you know, policy or uh, in in the world. I mean, universities, they're universal, you know. I mean, they look at, in theory at least, uh, an international perspective as well as local. They bring those together. But there's absolutely nothing in those performance <laughs> indicators about that. Yeah, that's so true. Universities, are, you know, I think this is a way of framing universities as just a... Um, you know, consumers go in, they get their degree, and then to get their use out of it, they're employed, you know. Um, it's a very, like, one plus two equals employed, you know, graduates, um, which is definitely not a model of university that would be ideal. Ideally, a university is, you know, a public institution for learning and knowledge sharing, and part of that is getting students in to learn, but not only to learn because they want a qualification to get a job, but because, you know, that's how you... Um, you know, as as someone in society and as an educated society, we want to, like, build knowledge and um, critical thinking and all of that. So maybe maybe the government isn't interested in that critical thinking part. Yeah, perhaps. You know, you can look at it cynically and say so. <laughs> yeah, um, but I'm also, I mean, one of the indicators there is teacher quality, which often, I mean, there's two parts of that. One is the casualization of the teaching um, people of, of university work generally, and the other thing is the, the potential of a, you know a popularity contest. Um, so so you've got you know um, who's the most popular? I don't know, but that mm. you know that feels also a little bit just a bit strange. But I don't know how you feel about that one. Yeah, I think we already have um, at, on campuses. You know, most universities do student experience surveys, and teaching quality is um, you know often one of the measures. Um, that were measured, but yeah, of course, we have to consider that staff are being shafted in terms of the casualization and like the amount of hours that they get given for you know per you know essays they have to mark or so on and so forth. Um, so yeah, univer- I mean, if, if this means that universities look at that and look at uh, treat their staff a bit better, <laughs> um, you know, that would be really positive, although I doubt that will be the case. Yeah. And with more more and more students going to university than before, and I guess with, you know, the the risks of people dropping out being quite high, you know, those students do need more help and will need more help. And it's an interesting time, I guess, in the evolution of university policy in Australia. How, how can people, I guess, you know, be more um, informed about what is happening and how can people join and help the National Union of Students to make sure that, you know, you guys get the, uh, I guess, get more. I mean, $80 million, as you say, it's nothing compared to 2.2, but how can we help all the student unions out there 
to maybe let Mr. Tian know that this is not acceptable? Yeah. Well, if you're a student, join your student union and get involved there on campus. Um, and just for everyone else, like, listen out for higher education news. I think that often, like, when you look at elections and things like that, higher education is seen as one of those expendable um, sort of, like, issues. Like, no education so they can cut as much as they want out of it and we need that to change and we need the public perception of universities and what worth they bring to society to increase you know mm. so um having those sort of conversations and thinking a bit more about that is really important well desiree thank you very much for joining us on uh, 3cr and just giving us yeah, a little bit more of an insight i know that there's um you know a, a fair bit of uh information there especially when you're talking about performance and then funding and then how you know the mm. schemes work especially for universities but we really appreciate you joining us on uh, 3CR Breakfast No thank you, thank you for having me And that was Desiree Kai, the National President of the National Union of Students um, Yeah it's quite worrying you know to sort of think that uh, one of, I, was, I think we talked about one of the testing um, models being how the equity group and the attrition measures will interact. So the equity group is about getting people from low socioeconomic Yes, which, which, which we have to say, yes, this is a good thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, then, and then when you put that together with attrition, how will that affect your funding? For well, I guess this is also know? where student services and student support comes in. Yeah. And so what amount of money is uh, allocated to for that? that? You know, it's, it's a very um, simple thing to say, oh, well, we need more students. And it's an important thing that yeah. we need more students but we, uh, from, um, you know, Indigenous backgrounds. Mm. And, uh, yeah, well, I mean, we need a student body that represents the society in which we live, yeah. shall we say. Yeah. And what's often missing in those words like disadvantage, students, it locates the disadvantage in the individual, yeah. whereas that disadvantage is actually created in the society in which yeah. we live. That's right. And yeah. uh, so we need to ameliorate that by, uh, you know, support for students, as she talked about, you yeah. know, income for students, yeah. but also, um, yeah, the support services within the university as well. So. Yeah, to ensure student success in the long term. Yes, yeah. 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 But also, you know, there shouldn't be pressure on universities to pass students who shouldn't be, who haven't, yeah. you know, yeah. because... Or, <laughs> and I guess yeah. then that leads, has a flow-on effect to things like cutting courses where, you know, let's say for the last five years... In critical have, thinking. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> people who have come out of this, these courses didn't get jobs, so we'll get rid of them yeah. so we can get more. And the arts, I mean, the arts is huge in this. And, uh, yeah, so, but that's a whole other story. <laughs> yeah. We'll be back. But I think probably time we'll just for... Just a community announcement and we'll have yeah. a track, Baker Boy, in just a minute. The Renegade Pub Football League proudly presents its inaugural Pride Round, Painting Victoria Park Rainbow, on Saturday, August 24th. Celebrating diversity in pub football, this free community event offers a laid-back afternoon of gender-inclusive Aussie rules football, alongside DJs and a charity barbecue. Saturday, August 24th, gates open at 12.30. For more information, including Pub Footy's August and September fixture, visit www.rpfl.com.au. The Renegade Pub Football League is a 3CR supporter.
the street light, howling at the moon. When I hit a beat, not a guy. And that was Baker Boy. Cool as hell. Yeah, and he is. <laughs> That's for sure. <laughs> Okay, so Dean, I don't, I'm sure you remember last week we spoke to Dr. Paul Sutton about the rise in silicosis at work sites in Australia. So today we're following up on that because I felt there's a lot more to this story, and and I think we'll continue to follow mm. it for a while. Mm. So I was able, and um, Paul also recommended that I speak to Tim Driscoll, and uh, he's a professor of epidemiology, which and for people who don't know, epidemiology is the study of the pattern of health and illness. In society, so you know which groups are experiencing more of a particular illness, which tells us that again, what are the social factors that are having mm. an impact on that? So, so he's pressing. So it might have been related to your epidermis. Uh, could be, <laughs> <laughs> or maybe the exodermis. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, but I think that's getting way too complicated. <laughs> but anyway, he's a professor of epidemiology and occupational medicine in the School of Public Health at the University of Sydney. He's also the chair of the Occupational and Environmental Cancer Committee with the Cancer Council. So he spoke to me also last, last Thursday. Last Thursday was a busy day for me. <laughs> I spoke to quite a few people. And um, I began by just asking him about the rise in cases of silicosis. Tim I'm Christ- an occupational physician, so I work in, in the area. And I really felt that it was a not a historical disease, but a disease that was rapidly declining because of better control of exposures. And that's what should have been the case, but unfortunately there have been some circumstances, particularly in relation to work with artificial stone, where the exposures have clearly not been well controlled. And it's not just that they haven't been well controlled. In some situations they've almost certainly been very, very high and there have been a number of workers exposed at levels that we just would not have thought would occur in modern Australian workplaces. Almost no controls at all by the sound of it? In some of them, that's what it appears. I haven't got first-hand experience with investigating those, so I'm only going on what I've read and seen a film of. But certainly it seems like in some situations the controls have been very rudimentary or, or absent. Most of the exposures appear to have occurred in fairly small workplaces. It's quite common that in the small workplaces, people just don't have the resources to put to occupational health and safety to have them appropriately recognising the risks and understanding how to appropriately control them and to monitor exposures. And it just looks like all of those and some lacking of the education of the workers, I suspect, has meant that people have been working in circumstances that just aren't appropriate and it hasn't been recognised until much too late. And when did you become aware of the increase? The Occupational Health and Safety Community in Australia first became aware maybe two years ago. But I don't think it was really appreciated the extent of it until probably last year. This is new. This is fairly recent then. Oh, it is. It wasn't well recognised in Australia until the last couple of years. Oh, I'm, I'm wondering, what was your first reaction on hearing the news that uh, cases of silicosis were emerging? I was almost incredulous. I just thought that things were under control in Australia. Very disappointed because these conditions are eminently preventable and sad because once the silicosis has developed, there's no way of reversing it. And when there's advanced and rapidly advancing diseases, the only cure is a lung transplant. There's not always lungs available. There are a lot of complications associated with 
post-transplant and so people's quality of life and length of life are probably both diminished but it's much better than yes, you know, the of alternative. Course. And I should yes. stress that not everybody with silicosis gets so sick that they get to the stage where they either need a transplant or they're not going to survive. But right. people with aggressive forms of silicosis, which tends to occur with the sort of high exposures that appear to have been the case in some of the artificial bench covers, that's when the real problems are. In the new cases, what age groups are affected? Is there a pattern emerging there? It's pretty clear that the people who are being affected are of working age, relatively young working age, so 30s and 40s, and I think even some people in their 20s. Yes, and I think um, last week, Dean, you said you were speaking to someone, mm. yeah, maybe in his 20s. He, he was, yeah, and his, yeah. his career's finished in that industry anyway. Yeah. But yeah, and as, as Tim mentioned, he, he, he pointed out that it's not deadly to everyone that has it. You know, there's certain levels that you yeah. can get it. Yeah, but most cases, obviously... Yeah, they've yeah. been working So the more serious time. cases, mm. yeah. And I did also, when we we're going to hear in a minute again from Tim, but I did also look up uh, some information on lung, uh, on, sorry, on lung transplants. Yeah. And yeah. so you know, there's uh, interesting information there to be found out. But I was particularly interested in, um, in the prevention, so I asked him about, well, what, what are the prevention measures that you can use? We use what's called the hierarchy of control, which is this, series of different types of control measures and we start at the top and if that doesn't work we go to the next and so on and right at the top is to eliminate the exposure but in the case of artificial stone bench tops it's certainly been actively proposed that perhaps we should just not work on those because it's, it's, that, it's, that, it's actually that serious yeah because there's evidence that it's pretty difficult even using the standard control measures which I'll get to to properly control the exposure so some people feel that but if there is to be work on those or is other areas where there is silica exposure probably the best method is to use water-based methods so to dampen the material because then you don't get the dust or you get much much lower levels of dust in the air so that's one using wet methods the second thing is to have good ventilation because that's removing the silica um, from the air or decreasing the levels in the air by sort of sucking the contaminated air out and replacing it with clean air. And the third thing is to use a proper respirator. When so, you say a proper respirator, does that mean a respirator that's uh, had some kind of accreditation? At a minimum, it's going to be something that completely covers the nose and mouth and has filters on it to stop the dust getting in. And they have to change um, filters regularly? Is you, you do. I mean, they're not a perfect solution because, as you just mentioned, they've got filters and they need to be changed regularly and how regularly depends on how much dust has been in the air that they've been used in and how much they've been used. They need to be appropriately sealed, appropriately fitted, and all those things can be difficult to appropriately monitor. And also, they're not easy to work in. They often people get hot in them so they're not a perfect solution the other type of respirators that need to be used in some situations are full face respirators like wearing almost like a space suit they're much more comfortable to work in because you can have cool air brought in i have read that WorkSafe australia is thinking of introducing a new standard for the amount of silica uh, dust in the air yes. at 0.05 yeah. forward slash m3 milligrams per meter cubed 
Okay, and that's meter cubed of air. Yeah, that's correct. People have argued that that's not the best standard, that we should be looking at 0.02. Yeah. What do you think about that? SafeWork Australia uh, develops the workplace standards that are recommended for the states and territories, and there are exposure standards for lots of different substances. The one for silica has been at 0.1 milligram per meter cube, that's what it currently is, but for a very long time there's been good scientific evidence to say that if somebody has a working, works at a working lifetime, so let's say 40 years, at that level of exposure, that the risk of them developing silicosis or lung cancer as a result of that exposure is much higher than the level that the community generally is seen to accept as an appropriate risk. You can't eliminate risk completely unless you eliminate exposure completely. So did you say the current standard, the evidence has shown it's not okay? Not okay. Why has that been allowed to stand so long? There is a particular subtle but important point that whether the exposure standards are practically based or health-based. But as I understand it, I'm pretty sure this is correct, that SafeWork Australia has made a decision that their standards will be health-based. That's good news, I think. Um, I think that is good news. I think we have to accept that, can't completely divorce that from what's practical or feasible, but that health is the primary basis of a standard. Coming back to, well, why has it been 0.1 for so long? I can't really tell you for sure, except it takes a while for government to change. It takes a while for scientific evidence to be seen as being conclusive. That from industry's point of view, they've been loath to lower the standard because they've felt it might be an unreasonable impost on cost. Those are all reasons why it may have stayed at the 0.1. That's correct. And now they're looking at lowering it to 0.05. That's still not recognised as best practice. They have the opportunity to change it. Why not go for best practice? I wasn't part of the discussions and I haven't seen anything written about the discussions, but I imagine a group at SafeWork that made the decision took into account the information about risks at different levels to health but I can only presume that in some way they have taken into account what they thought was feasible. Feasible Uh, from whose perspective? From the employers. Okay now the other suggestion I've heard that even this the 0.05 is not going to be brought in for three years. Have you heard that? I have heard that. I haven't seen anything official but it wouldn't surprise me if that's the case. Usually there is a period of adjustment, I guess that's the best word. They might say, well, we're going to have to change our multi-million dollar machinery to get down below 0.05 and it's going to take us a bit of time to do that or we're going to have to change our work methods and it's going to take us a bit of time to do that. In many cases, I don't think it's unreasonable to have a bit of a a run-in time. Three years seems a long time to me. Industry should always be working to have exposures as low as possible, not just below the exposure standard. So I would have expected that most areas of industry have been, if not should have been, working at well, well below 0.1. So it seems to me it shouldn't be big impost to get down below 0.05. So I would have expected most workplaces could comply with this without too much difficulty. I guess if I was advising government, I would be saying, well, look, I welcome a decrease from 0.1 to 0.05, 
but I'd welcome a further decrease down to 0.02 as soon as practicable and whatever level is chosen lower than 0.1 that the industry be required to move to that level as soon as possible. And that certainly does need to happen, move as soon as possible. And when we spoke to Dr. Paul Sutton last week, he said that we should get, be getting in touch with our members of parliament um, and to ask that, the, not, that it, the change not be delayed and also let them know that we'd prefer the 0-2 as opposed to zero five. 5 So there is action we can take. That was uh, Tim Driscoll, Professor in Epidemiology and Occupational Medicine in the School of Public Health at the University of Sydney and Chair of the Occupational Environmental Cancer Committee with the Cancer Council. And just an, as I was looking into this rise in cases of silicosis, I also saw an ad from Slate and Gordon, mm. which has mm. launched an investigation. It's just an investigation into a class action. It's not, they're not launching a class yeah. action at this point against the manufacturers of popular kitchen and bathroom stone bench tops. Yeah, um, I did listen to a story of a 22-year-old Connor Downs from the Gold Coast yes. who was telling his story. Yeah. And I think he's part of the, you know, the preparation yes. for the... Sater and Gordon law case. Yeah, it's quite. Yeah. You know, and they're wanting to hear kid. from they're wanting to hear from anyone who's mm. been affected. I guess to to assess the situation. So that's um, yeah worth keeping an eye on. Now coming up next, we're going to be speaking with Vince Scapatura. And just as some background, over the past weeks we've been watching, and I'm sure you have seen, as hostilities escalate between the U.S. and Iran. Yeah. Um, I mean, every time. Um, you know, the President Trump talks about these unprovoked attacks. Yeah. I mean, the provocation was, of course, from Pre- President Trump initially. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. in cancelling um, the agreement with Iran. And too. he's feeling it on both sides, both at home and overseas. Yes. So anyway, um, so the, but the hostilities are escalating, and uh, Australia has been urged to join a U.S.-led, and uh, again in quotes here, Peacekeeping mission, mm. Ministry of Truth again, and uh, in the Strait of Hormuz. And on the surface, it's to keep shipping lanes open, but as a number of commentators have pointed out, the more military in the area, the greater the risk of an accident provoking out-and-out war. It looks like Scott Morrison has given in to U.S. pressure and he agreed to provide support in the Strait of Hormuz, but we're not clear yet what the nature of that support is going to be. So Vince is joining us now to discuss these events. Vince Capitura lectures in politics and international relations at Macquarie University. He's also a spokesperson for IPAN, the Independent and Peaceful Australia Network, and his book, The U.S. Lobby and Australian Defence Policy, was published earlier this year, well, I think just a couple of months ago. So welcome back to 3CR Monday Breakfast, Vince. It's a pleasure to be with you. It's great to have you here. And I guess my first question, given the events the last couple of weeks, is how does the U.S. exert influence in Australia to maintain support for its military adventures? Well, there are a number of ways. Um, so uh, Kim Beasley, the former uh, U.S. ambassador, the former Australian ambassador to the U.S., when he returned from his post after six years in office in 2016, expressed his shock at the uh, level of integration between Australia and the United States. Uh, he referred to that, uh, to that uh, deepening between the uh, uh, Australian and U.S. military, the intelligence community, the arms industry as a deep state. 
Um, oh, uh, Vin, I'm it, sorry, I, I just missed. Who was the person who expressed shock? Kim, Kim Beasley. Oh, Kim Beasley. Yes. Yeah. Yes, sorry. Kim yeah. Beasley, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, after seeing it firsthand, uh, being in Washington for six years as, a, as Australia's ambassador to the U.S., uh, and I, I think that's correct. Uh, the level of integration dependence on the United States now is as high as it's ever been in our history, even at the height of the Cold It's even higher than it was at the height of the Cold War. Um, and there are a number of uh, number of aspects of that. The first is at the at the military level. So the level of uh, integration between Australia and U.S. military through uh, defence exercises, military exercises. We just saw the largest ever a contingent of uh, American forces training with Australian forces in Queensland during the Taliban Sabre exercises. Uh, there's a and that was just last visit. month? Was that, that was just last month, wasn't that, it? That's right. Just, it was just concluded um, a couple of weeks ago at the end of July. Um, and we can discuss more about what those military exercises were all about. They're billed as, as increasing uh, combat readiness and interoper- interoperability, but really they're more about training the Australian American forces to work together in a potential war against China. Um, but that's at the military level. We've also got the intelligence level, the American intelligence facilities at Pine Gap, which really hardwire Australia into any U.S. future U.S. war and wars that are being conducted now, whether we consent to those wars or not. And that's been going uh, since the 1960s, Pine Gap, hasn't it? That's right. That's right. Exactly. Yeah. And it's incre- dramatically increased in, in scope and function <clears throat> over the last couple of decades uh, to the point that I mentioned now it's virtually impossible for Australian not to be involved in any U.S. war, at least indirectly. It's also very difficult for Australia to conduct our own independent uh, military operations without U.S. support because we're so tied into the communication systems that work through Pine Gap. So there's there's that level, but then there's also that the political level, uh, the level of political interference uh, in Australia by the United States, by what I refer to as the, the pro-U.S. lobby, uh, which effectively is that uh, dominant element of the national security establishment which promotes and protects an ever closer relationship with the United States. Uh, and, and, sorry, and Vince, this is something yeah. that would be less visible to the general public and to the community in Australia, I would think. Well, in a sense, yes. I mean, um, this uh, pro-US uh, lobby is effectively the dominant part of the, of the national security elite, whether that be prominent uh, writers in foreign and defence policy in the media, which we all read about, uh, whether it be in academia, uh, think tanks, non-government organisations, private diplomatic initiatives like the Australian-American Leadership Dialogue. Um, and uh, they attempt to, uh, as I mentioned, um, promote an ever-closer relationship with the United States. And, and it's underpinned by this adherence to this conventional wisdom, uh, what I refer to as the alliance orthodoxy, which is the idea that the US alliance is indispensable to Australian security, it's rooted in shared values and interests, underpinned by uh, benign U.S. regional and global uh, hegemony. Now, your uh, your book those, challenges that yeah, orthodoxy. All of those things, I think, are quite clearly contestable. But even if you didn't agree and took a different position, um, the fact is that all of those things are barely challengeable uh, in Australian security, national security discourse. And that's the issue. The issue is that there's no debate about these things, uh, whether you agree with them or not. The idea that uh, the U.S. alliance is indispensable to Australian security. When you have a look at uh, history of the U.S. alliance since the end of World War II, Australia has has had one of the most benign security environments in the world, quite far away from all the major areas of strategic conflict 
Yes, uh, until now. Argument. Until and, now. And, until, uh, yes, yes, until now. That's very true. Yes. Uh, you could argue that it's in fact the U.S. alliance which has uh, undermined Australian security in a number of ways because it's been a target of the major powers, including up until today, or of uh, non-state actors like terror, terrorism uh, because of our alliance with the United States, or at least those threats have been exacerbated because of our alliance. Yes, and, and, and I think a number of people, you've argued that, a number of people have argued that that yes. alliance is putting yes. Australia at risk in certain ways and has done. And so uh, that's uh, the, the security argument, the argument that Australia and the US are, are bound together by shared values. And this was the mantra up until very recently, but now that we have uh, President Trump in the White House, it's very difficult to make that argument anymore. It certainly uh, is, yeah. Yeah, so we, don't, we hear a little bit less about that. Uh, and then finally the idea that the US... Uh, is underpins global peace and stability, international law, the global rules-based order. I mean, that one's really difficult to take seriously, I think. Yes, um, for sure. Uh, but, but it's repeated. It's repeated and it's, it's almost uh, never challenged. And this is because of the existence of the pro-U.S. lobby. Yes, and so it sounds like they're, they're doing their work effectively. And uh, while IPAN was meeting not this past weekend, the weekend before in Darwin, there were have also been around that time the Osmin meeting um, in Sydney, which um, was visits to Australia from um, the U.S. Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo, newly installed Secretary of Defense, Mark Esper, both known as hawks, eager for war with Iran and China. And it seems like right now there's a lot of pressure being exerted on Australia to adopt a U.S. foreign policy and join in military initiatives. Is that your sense? Yes, Absolutely. Um, and uh, as you mentioned um, in your introductory remarks, it appears as if Australia is going to be joining uh, the United States in a, a so-called coalition of the willing, a second coalition of the willing, after the disastrous first coalition of the willing that uh, uh, launched the invasion of Iraq in 2003. Yes. Uh, but this time in order to apparently protect uh, shipping through uh, the Strait of Hormuz, um, it's billed as a uh, an attempt to ensure freedom of navigation for commercial shipping, uh, but of course no one's going to be going there and uh, uh, protecting Iranian ships from uh, selling their oil to countries all over the world because of course uh, there are sanctions on Iran and, and this whole attempt to uh, patrol the Strait of Hormuz is about uh, preventing Iran from reacting to the sanctions which are crippling the country. And, and so preventing, potentially preventing Iranian ships going out, would that be the case? Well, uh, you know, uh, not not uh, potentially, yes, but I mean, the, the idea is that uh, Iran is going to be, which it already has, uh, reacted to um, to these sanctions by, oh, okay. uh, uh, you know, potentially attacking ships. So the idea is to protect those ships. Uh, but this is the only way that re- Iran has been able to uh, exert its, uh, its uh, uh, pressure to um, force the United States and Europe to uh, adhere to the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, the nuclear deal. Um, so, yes, it's, it's billed as uh, ensuring freedom of navigation, but certainly that can't be the case when at the same time Australia is uh, in support of um, uh, global sanctions, US-led global sanctions against the US. I mean, we wouldn't be having any of this if the US, well, I'm thinking we wouldn't if the US hadn't withdrawn from the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action. Uh, just wasn't it, How long ago was that? About a year ago or so? It withdrew? Yes, it was just, just over a year ago that the U.S. withdrew from it. But effectively, as soon as uh, the Trump came into office, uh, he, um, he was violating it by preventing U.S. investment in Iran. 
Oh, I see. Um, so every there was a, a waiver that came up every few months that the Trump administration, that President Trump was required to sign uh, to say that Iran was complying with the deal. And every time the waiver came up, he threatened to not sign it. Yes. Uh, and of course, that that meant that U.S. companies were not going to invest in Iran because they were concerned that he was going to rip it up, which in fact he ended up doing. Mm-hmm. So the whole time that the Trump administration's been in office, they've been effectively violating the deal by preventing U.S. investment in Iran, which in fact right. was a key part of the deal. Mm-hmm. Um, and even prior to to Trump coming into office, um, because uh, uh, U.S. businesses were were listening to the rhetoric from all the candidates from the Republican Party who were saying that they were going to rip up the deal, or most of them. Um, mm-hmm. They were also too scared to invest. So it's really, Iran has, has hardly benefited, benefited from, the, um, from the nuclear deal, even when um, the United States was still at least uh, oh, I see. So, at so, adhering to the agreement. Yeah. yeah, so that really has placed a lot of pressure. Um, and just, I'm just coming back. You mentioned the um, the exercises conducted between yeah. the U.S. and uh, Australia in July. Can you say a little bit more about those exercises? Yeah. So these are the uh, talisman saber exercises. They've been happening since I think 2005. The biennial, so every two years. They're the largest training exercises between the U.S. Uh, and Australia. Around 34,000 forces from the U.S. and mainly the U.S. and Australia, but a few other countries as well participated. Uh, and the idea is that uh, it's there to enhance combat readiness and interoperability. But as I mentioned, uh, the kinds of exercises, the major exercises that Australia and the U.S. were participating in uh, were uh, the kinds of exercises that the U.S. Army envisioned for a, a potential a future war with China. Uh, and, of course, then we had the announcement or the uh, intimation by uh, Secretary Pompeo, as it was here for the Osmond consultations, uh, and in the aftermath of the uh, U.S. withdrawing from the International Nuclear uh, Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Agreement, uh, that the U.S. Uh, might like to host uh, uh, ballistic and cruise conventional missiles throughout Asia and potentially Australia. And and I gather in the Northern Territory there was a request put, but that the government has rejected that request, I, I felt, from what I've read. Initially, it sounded like Prime Minister Maurice Payne leaving open the possibility of Australia hosting missiles, uh, but then uh, Scott Morrison and Maurice Payne herself, uh, within 24 hours later, clarified that, no, there had been no request from the United States. And so oh, I see. Australia, so it's not clear. Australia didn't, Australia didn't, decide, didn't decline anything because nothing was requested. But, of course, Secretary Esper later uh, confirmed, he said these missiles are not going to be ready for several years. And there's going to be an in-between in now and several years when these uh, new missiles are ready. The U.S. will be having dialogue and conversation with all the allies in the region, and they'll make decisions about where they're going to place them. So uh, there's no uh, request at the moment, but I'm sure that uh, Australian government will be coming under increasing pressure in the years ahead when these missiles become operational. Of course, why this is all relevant to the military exercises uh, that just concluded in Taliban Sabre, U.S. forces from Okinawa had brought with them uh, a high-mobility artillery rocket system, which is basically a mobile truck with missiles on top. And they were using uh, that as part of their training in Queensland. And this is part of the U.S. Army's new experimental multi-domain operations concept. This is the idea of uh, having this little uh, mobile uh, missile system uh, airlifted and deployed to a small island and then used to provide cover for U.S. forces at sea. Where are those missiles now? So those mobile missile trucks were actually left behind uh, after 
the U.S. forces brought them from Okinawa. By accident. And, uh, not intentionally. They didn't forget them. They left them to for use by the U.S. 2,500 U.S. Marine Air Ground Task Force, which is now on its eighth uh, rotation through Darwin. Yeah, it sounds um, like those, the U.S. came for a sleepover and left some things behind. It does sound that way, yes. But those mobile missile trucks, I should add, they have a limit of uh, a range of 300 kilometers. But the U.S., now that it is free from the constraints of the, the INF Treaty, uh, has announced that it's developing missiles for that same truck that could exceed uh, 500 kilometers, which was the previously prohibited range under the INF Treaty. And in fact, is developing other missile systems with even longer range, cruise missiles, hypersonic missiles, which would need new launches um, because they're much bigger missiles. But uh, the kind of training and logistics uh, that went into the recent Talisman Sabre exercises would be exactly the same. And Vince, I guess it um, follows on from um, the report that one of America's most senior military figures, Admiral Scott Swift, was saying that... Uh, you know, the United States lacked a grand strategy to respond to the emerging superpower that is China. So from someone internal, he's actually saying that sort of uh, maybe highlights why, you know, we're in this predicament where the US have now sent pretty much three of their top officials to come and have these chats because nobody seems yes. to have an idea about where to go to next. Precisely. I mean, the US has officially labelled uh, China as a strategic competitor, as a rival, uh, both China and, and Russia, but in that order, China first. And so although the U.S. kind of justified the withdrawal of the from the INF Treaty based on allegations of Russian violation, of course there were allegations by the Russians against the U.S. of violation too, but really high officials in the Trump administration have been arguing for a long time that that treaty you know, constrained them from developing the kinds of missile systems they would like to use to deter China in the Indo-Pacific. And so I think that's really the motivation behind this. Vince, there's so much to know and so much to understand about this. In, at one level, it's very complicated and very intricate. At another level, it's pretty straightforward that we are being pressured, and it almost feels like we're becoming a military outpost of the U.S. Well, uh, the foremost expert on uh, Australian uh, of U.S. bases in Australia, uh, Professor Richard Tanter, has said if you look at the level of access that the U.S. has to our own defense facilities, if you look at what Pine Gap is doing, how it's being expanded, if you look at how we're being integrated into the U.S. military, then overall, from China's perspective, we don't look like a country that hosts U.S. bases. We look like we're a big base. Yes, uh, it does feel like that. And so thank you so much, Vince, for your book, which was fascinating, and also for your time this morning. I mean, it's so important to have groups like IPAN that are keeping an eye on what's going on and making it available to the public. So thank you so much for joining us on 3CR Monday Breakfast. Thanks, Vince. And thank you very much for having me. And that was Vince Scapatura. Yes, from IPAN and also um, a lecturer at um, Macquarie University. And that was Midnight Oil with Put Down That Weapon and, um, yeah, from their album Diesel and Dust.
would have been released in around 88. 86. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, yeah something around no, then. Yeah. 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 Um, I miss them. <laughs> yeah, quickly time to wrap up the show before we go to Women on the Line. Yeah, yeah and it has been a, a packed show, as you said earlier. We started off with uh, Centre Rex Patrick on the raids on the ABC and News Corps and uh, the extent to which the security agencies are involved, possibly. Anyway, he's going to be checking that out further. And we had uh, Desiree Kai, President of the National Union of Students, talking about a funding scheme model for universities and how they don't measure up. They're worried that they might not measure up. Yeah, and we also spoke to Professor Tim Driscoll from the Cancer Council about... Um, silicosis. Yeah, silicosis and, uh, you know, the increase in cases and how that might be prevented. And we just finished off with Vince Capatura talking to us also about uh, the rise that is the superpower that is China and also the Strait of Hormuz and how the Australian-US alliance are trying to get together or work together. It's a really tricky, you know, I think it's a really tricky space for Australia right now because they do want to maintain their contacts with China, but they're being pressured by the U.S. to to see China as an enemy. And, uh, yeah, it's it's concerning times. Keep an eye on it. And we'll be back next week. And we will. And Alice will be back. So uh, welcome back to Alice in advance. 3CR relies on the support of ethical organisations to keep our vital community of voices on air. And we'd like to thank our breakfast supporters, the new international bookshop, Nibs, at Trades Hall. You can check them out at nibs.org.au. And if you'd like more information on how your organisation can become a 3CR supporter, contact the station on 03 9419 8377.